So what's up, everybody? I'm Nick. I'm here with Ryan and Mark, and we are Bible diggers. I like that. We forgot our soundboard today <laughs> at home. So hit me with that soundbite again. Bible dingers. There you go. <laughs> but today we have a special episode lined up for you, and we are tackling the heavy topic of amillennialism. And we have a special guest. You know him from our Covenant Theology episode. And I believe we did some other stuff with him too, right? Did we do another Amillennial? No, no, no. We did Sam Oh, Stones no. Alex, yeah. Alex Sank, if you guys know him from Undying Light, had Pastor Chris on for his Amillennialism episode. And we brought him back to discuss Amillennialism. Pastor Chris, just in case they didn't uh, listen to the Covenant Theology episode, why don't you just take a few moments to introduce yourself and tell our audience who you are and what you do? Okay, I'm uh, Pastor Chris, as has been said. I'm pastor of Metropolitan Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, been pastoring here for 28 years by God's grace. Uh, we're excited about what God is doing uh, in this church at this time. Um, as far as my background, I was, grew up uh, in the uh, in the church, uh, not this church, but I grew up in the church, um, and yet I certainly was not a believer. Uh, until my junior year of high school, when God radically transformed my life. And that was during the Jesus Movement. For those of you who know when that was, you'll know how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but anyway, um, God eventually led me to study for the ministry at Taylor University, um, did my undergrad work in biblical studies, and then uh, got my Master of Arts in Religion at Westminster Seminary. I'm a Master of Divinity at Westminster Seminary. And my Doctor of uh, Ministry at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, so those are my credentials. Um, hopefully my uh, preaching and um, mentoring is uh, more important than uh, those titles. Yeah, no doubt. We just finished going through the Revelation series which is such a big reason why we wanted Pastor Chris on because it was uh, it was pretty life changing, honestly, for me and mind changing as far as views. I came to this church as a dispensational premillennialist, and I'm I'm uh, at this church now, just basically confused on what I am, but definitely not dispensational premillennial anymore. Definitely leaning heavily towards amillennialism, and that's primarily only because of Pastor Chris's sermon series going through the Book of Revelation. So. We really wanted to have him on to discuss amillennialism because the points that are being made are are really clear and easy to understand and really convincing. And so that's also why we're not just having Pastor Chris on to do the amillennial view, as we, we always have guests on to give you just a basic overview of the doctrinal view. We also are doing a few more episodes following this one where we're going to take a little bit of a deeper dive into the amillennial view of Revelation, and we're going to discuss some of the signs and symbols, go through the outline of the book and things of that nature. We really wanted Pastor Chris to sort of lead the way through it because it's definitely out of Nick, me, and Mark's depth, I would say, to really dive deep and be able to explain it well. Yeah, and it's his favorite book. Right. Every book of the Bible is my favorite. That's Nick. true, but you know, you know, Revelation's your favorite. I believe he's working on a commentary, right? Yes, sir. He's working on a commentary. He's been studying this book thirty years plus. Um, no, to to tell you the truth, uh, when I came to uh, Metropolitan, um, I had avoided Revelation like the plague, uh, as most pastors do, um, but. It was uh, not long after that that the uh, Left Behind series came out. Nice. And everybody and their brother was asking me what I thought about the Left Behind series. I could easily answer what I felt about the Left Behind series, but what I couldn't answer was, what did I believe? <laughs> I mean, I knew I was kind of amill, but I, I, uh, as far as Revelation goes, I... I had uh, not really done a deep dive. So I'd say it's been uh, 20, about 20 years. About 20 years. When I began to really study it. And uh, it took me over three years to get to the place where I felt that I somewhat understood what was going on. And then the next 17 years has just been building on that. 
That's great. So let's go ahead and dive right into uh, millennialism. And we'll just uh, we'll give you your first question. Can you give us a basic overview of amillennialism and some of its basic supporting arguments? Sure. Uh, before I do that, or as part of that, um, I have a stack of books uh, sitting here in front of me um, that uh, come from all those different perspectives, right? I've got uh, The Last Days According to Jesus by R.C. Sproul, which is sort of a preterist uh, approach to it. I have um, the expository commentary on Revelation uh, by Tom Schreiner, who in it says that he had switched his position um, and, and then become Amil, and then now he is, I think, has come out with a new commentary in which he says, but I've switched my position again, and now yeah. I've gone to New Covenant um, <laughs> you know, perspective. I have Wayne Gruden's systematic theology in which he decimates the Amil position, um, just like tears it apart. And then I have G.K. Beale, who rebuilds it <laughs> and, and gives us the full um, Amil, you know, argumentation and, and position. So uh, when, when you think about these names and these individuals and you say, yeah, but every one of them is good and godly and, you know, powerful teachers. And most of them, um, if not all of them, are reformed in theology, which I am. You have to kind of shake your head and go, what gives me the right to speak on topics that these guys have, have already um, written on either against them or for it? Uh, so that kind of humbles you when, uh, when you sit there and, and say, hmm, and I'm supposed to be the one that's sharing on this topic. But let's, uh, let, let's move on from there to this, what is uh, millennialism? And for probably about uh, 20 years in the 80s and 90s, uh, our millennialists kind of said, that's not who we are, okay? Uh, and, and two terms have kind of, uh, you know, been raised up. First, realized eschatology. So you, in, the, in the 80s and 90s, that's, that's what you would have heard, well, yeah, we're a mill, but we prefer realized eschatology. In other words, that the eschaton, that, that we're in the last days, and the last days um, have, is that time period from Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven until his second coming, and that, that these are the last days. They aren't something that's off there in the future, but, but it's, it's realized now, and that a lot of what uh, the Scripture speaks about in terms of the last days has to do with the here and now. More recently, the the, the title um, it's it's not brand new, but it's become more the term that's used is uh, idealized, um, and that's just another way of saying uh, symbolic or uh, symbolism or typology, those kind of uh, of terms. So when we're when we're talking about the ah mill, the ah at the beginning of millennium is the, the Greek non, you know, or no, uh, no millennium in the sense that the, um, the dispensational or historic pre-mills would, uh, would use that term, right? That is that there is going to be a thousand-year reign after Jesus comes back here on earth. And so we say, no, there's not going to be a thousand-year reign. We are in that thousand-year reign now. Christ is reigning in heaven with the saints who have passed on, whether they're Old Testament saints or New Testament saints that have passed on. He's reigning in heaven now, um, and uh, his kingdom has come in that sense. Uh, so while we're still awaiting the final fulfillment of that in the second coming and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth, we are now uh, already in that the, that period that are called the last days, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So that's uh, that's a, a very brief kind of overview. So of you, you said that something. Term. I just want to stop you for a moment because again, 
people who've ne- never studied this before are going to listen to this episode and I want to be as clear as possible. You said that we are currently in Jesus's 1000 year reign now. What does that mean? Is it a literal 1000 years? What does that 1000 mean? Okay. Um, Revelation 20, that's a whole topic in and of itself. Um, we've got to get there to understand this, but Revelation 20 is, is a major topic when it comes to what position people hold. That thousand has to be taken in terms of the whole book of Revelation and the use of the number 1,000 throughout the book of Revelation. So if you're a literalist, that is, if you say, it, you know, if it, if it says it in black and white, that's what it has to be, you're going to have a lot of problems in the book of Revelation. You really are. And, uh, you know, as I, I, I read the Left Behind series. I, I forced myself to get through the whole thing uh, all the way through, I, you know, but you see the extremes that the individuals go to to try to make some of that stuff literal. A lot of it, they say, well, it's not literal, but it at least explains why it's not literal. Uh, but, you know, the, uh, the, just the idea, for instance, of Wormwood, that we're going to have an asteroid and the scientists are going to name it Wormwood and it's going to land uh, here on Earth and it's going to, you know, destroy right? A third of, uh, of all the waters and the things in the sea, right? So that, okay. Um, if we had an asteroid that was big enough to do that, it would destroy the whole earth. It, it, it wouldn't just destroy, you know, one third of the sea. It, it, it would be massive enough because three quarters of the earth is water, you know, three quarters of it. So, you're talking about, you know, uh, two-fifths of the whole of the waters of the sea being destroyed. Everything in it killed. Everything, you know, every ship in the sea and, you know, everything is devastated, destroyed by this asteroid, which has to be so massive to do that. It's going to destroy the Earth, too. It's, it's, it's you know, scientifically and then the answer that comes back often is, yeah, well, God can do what he, you know, whatever God wants, he can do it, okay? Um, but that's, that's all the way through the book. So when we come to that number 1,000, all the way through the book, whether it's 144,000 or 12,000 or any, all those numbers, that number 1,000 is designed to, to be the number of um, full completion of of something you know the full number of something so it's it's the number 10 cubed right and then when you have something that's three 10 10 10 that would be the number three is a number of absolute so it's absolute complete number so when we're talking about a thousand year reign we're not talking about an actual you know start on day one, end on day you know, 1,364. Um, we are talking about the absolute, complete reign of Christ in heaven before his second coming. So to follow that up, just to expound a little bit more on why people should perhaps take this using the amillennial interpretation, um, besides the fact that taking it very literally, you'll run into some of these problems like scientific impossibility and stuff. Is there other reasons why we should interpret Revelation through the Amil lens? How long do we have now? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, the, the, it, it, there's there's an, an just a tremendous amount of reasons why. But let me just start with Revelation one one to five or one to three. Um, the the introduction to Revelation tells us a number of things. Number one, it tells us that this is being given to John as signs. Now, the English translations don't always you know you know translate it that way, um, but the in the NIV uh, ESV it says you know that it made known. 
all right? Well, that, that word is the word Simeon. It's the same word that John uses in the Gospel of John to describe the miracles of Jesus as the signs, okay? As, as the signs of his deity, really, all right? So the, uh, that, that word is to, the King James says, signify, Right. That which, is. Which to, word is that? I'm looking at it now. Okay. So it's it's where um, he he made known. Okay. So that's verse 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 one. Verse one. He made it known by sending his by angel sending to his servant John. Okay. So it's it's Simeon. That is, he signified. He showed it in signs. Mm. All right. Uh, the the second term that we have there is that he tells us that it's prophecy. Now, in dispensationalism, um, you know, dispensationalists will say that prophecy is to be taken literally, right? Uh, more so than other parts of Scripture. Right? I would say just the opposite. I mean, and the reason I would say that is Numbers 12.6. In Numbers 12.6, you know, God gives his own definition of prophecy. And in that, he says, you know, I've, I've spoken... You know, to, to Moses face to face as a as a you know man speaks to a man, but when I speak to a prophet, I speak to him in signs and and uh, symbols. I speak to him in riddles. All right, that's God's definition of of prophecy. That is, it's not to be taken literally. It is given in signs, symbols, and riddles, uh, and and we see that um, you know. I don't care which Old Testament book that you uh, that you take, uh, particularly the prophetic books, right? You, you have that all the way through where we, we have these symbols. I mean, look at Zechariah, look at Ezekiel, mm-hmm. uh, Jeremiah. Uh, if if it's not a spoken, you know, symbolic thing, then it's an actual one. Lie on your side, naked for X number of days. Uh, now flip to the other side. Uh, you know, take this, this this belt and go bury it uh, in the, the, the banks of the Euphrates River. Then go dig it up. And, you know, so the uh, this, this idea that we're to take things literally doesn't fit with the, the rest of, of what the Scripture says. And then the term itself at the very beginning of of Revelation 1 says this is the revelation or this is the apocalypse. Um, that that term simply means to reveal something, um, but it means to reveal. It means to 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 open something up um, to 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 help you to to see it. And then it says it's revealing it how in symbols. Okay, it's revealing it symbolically. So to then turn around and say, but we're going to take all of this stuff literally, is to actually fly in the face of uh, of the very opening passages. All right, so that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me, but is there other portions of Scripture that you use to inform your hermeneutic for this? Yes, and... Uh, for me, that's, that's sort of like a, a trick question. And the reason is, my answer to that is Genesis to Revelation. Hmm. Uh, you see, the, the issue for all of these is the question of hermeneutics. How do, how do you approach the Scripture? Nobody approaches the Scripture by simply picking up the, the Bible and reading it and saying, oh, this, this is how I, you know, I interpret this particular passage. Every individual, especially every mature uh, Christian, when they pick up the Bible, uh, they have been taught how to interpret that Bible. In other words, how do I read it? For a dispensationist, they're going to read it in seven dispensations as, as they're, they're going through, whether you're a soft dispensationalist, you know, the, the neo-dispensationalist, or whether you're a, a, you know, an old dispensationalist. You're still going to read it with that kind of um, sense of, of you know, God working in different ways uh, throughout history. Um, that the Amil position basically says 
God has only had one way of approaching history from its beginning, so that it, he unfolds it for us. He opens it up um, and, and, and moves us forward, but that everything that God is doing from the beginning has been to bring not only us to the first coming of Christ, but to the second coming of Christ. So that when we are interpreting passages, for instance, in the Old Testament, we look at those Old Testament passages in its historical context, which is important to to understand it in that historical context. But even as we're looking at it in its historical context, we're asking ourselves, well, how does this apply to Christ? Okay, so how does it apply to his first coming? How does it apply to to what he has done and has accomplished? Uh, so even as we're looking at an Old Testament passage, we're we're asking that question. Or if you're looking at a New Testament passage, you're you're with the Apostle Paul or Peter or James. You're looking back and you're saying, what you know? How is what's happening to us brought about because of what Jesus Christ has accomplished? But even as we're doing that we ultimately have to be asking the third question. And that is, in light of God's eternal purpose in Christ, Ephesians 1, in light of that, then how does all of this point us to that ultimate conclusion? And what is that ultimate conclusion? All right, so if, if you're going to accept that uh, in a sense, there's there's a thousand year reign here on Earth. Then you have to say that God has four purposes. You know that we have to look at it in light of number one, what's it mean for the people of that day? Number two, what's it mean with the coming of Jesus Christ? What does it mean for the Christian who's living now? What's it mean then for the Christian for the church during a thousand year reign? And then what's it mean for the final? end of, of Christ. And so, it, you know, you're, if you're truly doing hermeneutics, that's the kind of question you've got to be asking of every passage of Scripture, because every passage of Scripture is, is, is always pointing us to the fullness of what God is planning on doing in the person of Jesus Christ. So, you'll find that, that my understanding of biblical passages— especially those that are concerned with the eschaton, with the, with the last days, um, might differ from some of the Reformed individuals, like a, a John Piper, for instance, um, or Hokema and, and, and others, who see still a place for Israel in that uh, thousand-year reign, okay? Or if they don't see it there, that there's going to be a, a full salvation from Romans 11. There's going to be a full uh, ingathering of, the, uh, of, of Jewish people, specifically, uh, in, uh, you know, close to the end of time, if not in the thousand-year reign. So, uh, when my argument is God has, has been unfolding his purpose from the beginning of time, towards that ultimate end of, of Jesus' uh, second coming and the final judgment and the, the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, the restoration of Eden, but in its, its full sense. So when I'm reading the Scripture, I'm reading it backwards and forwards. I'm reading it back into Eden. How, how is, is this working towards the, the, uh, you know, the, the restoration of Eden? How is it doing that? Because I'm also looking at what is God ultimately doing in that restoration, and how is that restoration going to be fulfilled? So when it comes to this idea that God is going to create an Eden on earth for a thousand years, right? because that's really what those Old Testament passages are about in, in terms of a millennial view— that it's it's a, it's, a, it's it's God restoring the Garden of Eden here on this physical earth, without its transformation, without its without its change. The only thing that's going to be different is that Jesus is going to be, you know, the King instead of the servant when He's here, and He's going to reign on this earth. But the earth is the same; it's still corrupt. 
it, 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 you know, sinners are still going to be sinners. The, uh, the you know, the, the curse is still on the earth. So he's going to restore the Garden of Eden, but he's not restoring the Garden of Eden. So, uh, you know, I have a, a, a real issue with that. No, when he does the restoration, it's going to be in its fullness. It's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. So when you ask me that question, I'm just simply saying, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, through to Revelation, all of those scriptures will ultimately point to the Amil position. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, much better than what we heard from the post-mill guy oh, wow. who said uh, that you believe in already but not really. Um, but obviously, that's not true. No. <laughs> no, we, we, you know, that's why we call it realized eschatology. Um, that we're in the last days because God is working all of these things in us towards that final end that he is seeking to accomplish and is accomplishing in the personal work of, uh, of Jesus Christ so that you know, we are the, you know, the, the partial fulfillment of what God is ultimately doing in terms of, of salvation and what salvation means. That's why we can say that we were saved in eternity past, we happen to, to, to be reformed in theology, so we believe that God elected um, in Christ, and our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life um, there. He saved us in Christ at the cross and his, his suffering, his death, resurrection, and ascension. He is saving us in our sanctification which means that we're already in the kingdom. We're already part of that kingdom work and that he will save us in that time of, of perfection. Uh, in the so if, if what I'm hearing is, is correct, if I'm understanding it correctly, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm also learning eschatology as we move through these series together. It sounds to me like on the post-mill side, they're looking to achieve Eden prematurely. Mm -hmm. That's and correct. they're looking for Eden on this broken earth, in this uh, world filled with sin and death and all that. They want, they're looking for Eden prematurely. What you're saying is, no, when Jesus comes back, the earth will be destroyed. And then following that, the new heaven and earth will happen, which is a recreation of the perfected state of Eden without sin and death. Yes. Right? If, you, if you think of the material realm, like a human body. What we read in 1 Corinthians 15 then applies to the whole universe, right? So this body that we have, this physical flesh and blood body that we have, is a, it's a seed of what we're going to be. In the resurrection, you know, Paul says, you know, the seed goes into the ground, it rots, it, it, it goes, but then what comes out of it is a thousand times more glorious than what went in, right? Well, that same concept is true of the universe as a whole, right? We, we're a type then of the whole universe. So that's why the scripture says that, the, you know, the heavens get rolled back like a scroll, the earth is consumed and fired and, and all of those things. That's not... It's not saying that God is getting rid of all of these things. It, he is, you know, as as you know, the, the Peter says, and then the writer of Hebrews, you know, everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. It's it's it, if it's material, it's gone. But out of it does not come something less. Out of it comes something that is, you know, a thousand times more. So you know, we're three dimensional creatures now. We'll be a thousand dimensional then. Uh, so, yes, when when God uh, when Christ returns, then the material and and the mortal, all that is gone, and we have eternity. We have you know everything else to do things to say that well, there's this this stage. Yes, there is a stage. That stage is called being born again, right? But in terms of the universe, the whole universe is groaning, awaiting what? Is it groaning, awaiting the 
return of saints from heaven to earth to live while it's still groaning? No, it's groaning awaiting the redemption of the sons of God. That is the fullness of what Christ has, has done for us. Uh, so the whole of creation is groaning towards that end. So I, I don't know if we're ready to jump right into the basic rebuttals, but I do, I do, I feel like the conversation is sort of naturally leading that way because you were speaking earlier about uh, how some of the Old Testament points to this view and things of that nature, how God has related to us and, and the way he's given us the messages throughout the entire Bible. And one of the rebuttals from the dispensational pre-mill view that I'm remembering now is that in the Abrahamic covenant, when God was speaking to Abraham, he made promises that his offspring, you know, he was going to have all these offspring. It was going to be a great nation. He was going to make his name great and he will occupy the land and things of that nature. And I know a lot of the dispensational view stems from the Abrahamic covenant and these promises that were made to Abraham. So what would you say to somebody that tells you, they can't be Amil because if they took the Amil position, then all of a sudden Abraham has all these broken promises from God because I think that the premillennial, the dispensational premillennial view, they base a lot of that off of God fulfilling promises to Abraham in the millennium here on earth one day because they will be reigning in physical Israel and things of that nature. So what would you have to say about these you know, potential broken promises if we take the revelation through the Amil lens? Well, first of all, I, I, I would go to the book of Luke and I'd look at Luke's genealogy, all right? Um, Luke's genealogy <clears throat> takes us back to Adam, not to Abraham, okay? Um, Matthew takes us to Abraham, but but Luke takes us all the way back. In other words, Jesus Christ did not come to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. He came to fulfill the Adamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant is a part of the Adamic covenant. The Adamic covenant is a covenant with humanity. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant to a nation and a people uh, in a particular land, right? But is it? The answer is no. It is the, the very first thing that God says to Abraham is you will be a blessing to what? The nations, hmm. not to the nation. And then he says, and your offspring are going to be nations, not nation. Hmm. Okay? We leave all that out when we're having that other discussion. All right, it's it's not about the nation. The nation of Israel is like Adam and Eve in, in the Garden of Eden. When God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He placed them there, and He said, "Now multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it." That is, take the Garden of Eden and the blessings of the Garden of Eden and spread those those blessings out to the whole earth. Of course, Adam failed. All right, so then you know Noah comes along. And Noah is another Adam, right? I, I would suggest that we understand the whole concept of what Jesus means by I'm the last Adam uh, in light of this. But uh, Adam's, you know, the man Adam is the first Adam. Seth is the second Adam. Noah's the third Adam. Uh, you know, then we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, you know, the judges, David, the various prophets, those are all Adams. The, the problem with all of them is that they receive the same covenant directions from God that Adam got, received, and they fail, all right? So when, when we have this promise to Abraham, it is to the nations, but then, but, but then he says, and the way that's going to happen is through the seed, now, that's, again, remember what I said about having to see it in light of its multiple, in a sense, fulfillments. It certainly meant Isaac. God makes that clear, right? Not in Ishmael, but in Isaac. And then later on, it's not in Esau, it's in Jacob, right? So, um, you know, all of those 
are descendants of Abraham. They're all nations, you know, and God says, I haven't, you know, when Ishmael goes, I haven't forgotten him. He's going to, you know, he's going to have 12 tribes himself, right? So, you know, God has the whole world in view, but what he's doing with the nation of Israel is he's saying the nation of Israel is the new Adam. And I'm putting you here, and he, he makes it very clear if you're, you're reading through the various, uh, you know, um, books of Moses, as you're reading those, God is making it very clear. He says, I'm, I'm giving you these laws so that when you interact with other people, they're going to say, what other God is like this? What other God has such glorious laws as, as your God has given to you? And, you know, when you get into the prophets, it's, and those, those nations are going to come to you and they're going to go, we want what you have. But Israel fails. Okay? Israel, Israel, like Adam, fails. So there's only one seed that comes through Adam that doesn't fail. And that's why he's the last Adam. So we have all of these, these different atoms in a sense, and Abraham is one of those. Uh, you know, I, I could give you a whole outline of, I think I did that under covenant theology, though, of uh, the breakdown of yeah. Adam and, and Moses the and David. The three aspects and, of, of the covenant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do want to be clear. So Genesis 12, you're saying that it uses the words nations? Yeah. Is that, is that the argument? Because I'm reading it, and it says... Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Keep going. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse you. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay. So families? Families as nations. Okay. Okay. So that's what I'm saying. Israel is supposed to be... The, the, the means, it's supposed to be like Adam, multiply, multiply throughout the earth, fill the earth, subdue it, bring it, uh, you know, bring it under, under God's reign, right? And that's why when, uh, for instance, you have the nation, or, or they, the judges, right? And they, the, the judges are, uh, you know, are, are rejected by the people of Israel in 1 Samuel, we want a king to be like the other nations. And what does God say about that? He says, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They're rejecting me because I'm supposed to be the king. I'm supposed to be the king not only of you but of those nations. So by rejecting me and wanting to be like those nations, you've just kept those nations from making me as king. And so in Psalm 72, which was our Bible study on Wednesday night, uh, in Psalm 72 it actually walks through that whole uh, process in which all the nations, in a sense, come underneath that one king, mm-hmm. King Jesus. Do you have any rebuttals to that? No. <laughs> I, I think we'll have plenty of opportunity for rebuttals mm-hmm. during our open roundtable discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a sneak peek for those who are, of you who are listening. We will have a roundtable at some point this season. Right now, all we have is the post-mill view and the on-mill view. I don't know about dispensational pre-mill, right? Mm -hmm. Not right now. But so far, we have Pastor Chris and Dale Partridge for the Mm roundtable. So if you do have any questions or any rebuttals to something that Pastor Chris has said, make sure you hit us up with those questions. You can send them to BibleDingers at gmail.com, or you can send them directly on our Instagram page, Twitter, whatever. Get us those questions, get us those rebuttals, because during the open roundtable, we will read them um, and get your questions answered. Yeah. Yeah, so if we could, um, I'd like to go back just quickly to um, just understanding amillennialism. And different views claim that uh, they have historical weight behind them with some of the early church fathers and things of that nature. I think pretty much everyone claims that except for dispensational pre-mill who are, are generally open to um, acknowledging that theirs is relatively newer. Um, but is that the case for the Amil view as well? Is there some weight of some of the early church fathers that also agreed with and believed this view as well? Um, 
Yes, we go farther back than the the fathers. We have the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> we have the father. The, we, we have the. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so, uh, yeah, in the early church, um, there were basically two positions. The in the very early church, and that was the the mill position, and the uh, historic pre mill mm-hmm. position. All right, so. Um, those uh, those positions date from the second and early third centuries. Uh, there, the post mill comes in uh, in the end of the fourth century, beginning of the, the fifth century. That you begin to get the post mill uh, position. But you know, w- we consider the early church uh, up to five ninety A.D. Okay, to uh, the the first pope Gregory the first. So anything prior to that is considered uh, early church. And so they all three then the post mill historic pre mill and um, the uh, the ah mill position are are early church but the earliest two are definitely the ah mill position and the historic pre mill position so um, yeah you don't have uh, there there's not a lot of clarity on those positions even in those first. Uh, three centuries, and the reason for that is that the early church was not, um, it was not aimed at theology. The early church was under persecution, and so most of the writings in the early church fathers up until uh, three, you know, early 300s, uh, most of that, that writing was either apologetics that is, apologias, uh, defenses of the faith, or practical uh, Christianity. How do, you, how do you live practically the, the, the faiths? So it, it, it's not like you have you know, full commentaries on the books of the Bible uh, or systematic theologies. So it's as a, a you know, as an, a, a preacher, teacher, writer, uh, as they were making their arguments, uh, you know, on these practical I- issues or on apologias, uh, as they were doing that, then they would pull in passages of of scripture. What I'm what I'm trying to say is, these guys were not theologians as we think of them today. Hmm. All right, you don't, you know. You don't get that until you have diminished the level of persecution to the place where these guys can now sit down together and they can talk over these matters and they can begin to develop. So, for instance, why is it that at the Council of Nicaea, which is the very first church council in 323 to 325 AD, we're just then talking about the nature of Christ? Hmm. Right, I mean, you know, Origen had written things, and some of those are controversial because he seems to kind of, of on the one hand, say that he's fully God, on the other hand, he's subordinationism, and 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 you know, he's kind of going back and forth. Why? Because it hasn't been worked out, mm. and that's true of eschatology as well. So, you know, for somebody to say, well, you know, the church fathers held this position, I would, uh, I would strongly disagree with that. What I didn't mention before is I've, I've taught church history for uh, 25 years. So, you know, I would strongly disagree with, with anyone saying that prior to 323, that there was a theological position that even the authors had, because they contradict themselves to a certain extent. Because nothing has really been hashed out and, and worked out in terms of a systematic or even biblical theology uh, at that point. So are you making the claim that we cannot use early church history to back up our eschatology? No, I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that if you're going to use church history, you know, a certain person, you need to read all that they say because, you know— their their eschatology is not a polished eschatology, so they might say something in Romans. Remember, they're not these guys are not infallible. 
They may say something, you know, in Romans that might contradict what they're saying about Revelation or that they might contradict what they're saying in 2 Thessalonians and not contradict in a sense that, you know, they're heretical or something like that. They just simply haven't worked all that out. Mm. Their, their concern is how do we defend the faith before the emperor or before, you know, Trifo the Jew or, you know, some other, uh, you know, figure of importance? How do we defend the faith for those individuals? Or how do we get the church to understand how it's supposed to live in the midst of persecution and suffering? So it just hasn't been polished. Yes, I think it's it's of great value to go back and uh, and and you know read them, but read them in their context. I had a, a discussion uh, not too long ago with an individual who was uh, you know saying stuff about um, Justin Martyr and that he was uh, you know sort of anti-Semitic, you know, and he, he was he, he had quotes from Justin Martyr. And so I gave him my, my copy of Justin's work, and I said, read all of them and then tell me, you know. Mm. Read, read the whole, uh, you know, uh, Letters to Trifo, okay, which is a whole series of interactions um, between him and Trifo the Jew. So read it all and then come back to me and, and tell me that that's what he meant in this passage of what, what you were saying. And he came back to me and he said, no, he didn't mean that. Okay, so that's all I'm saying. Let's read them in their context, just like we would the scriptures, all right? Let's read it in its historical context, as well as in the context of their overall writings. Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, I think that maybe a while back, these arguments that so-and-so believed it, they that meant a great deal to me because I would think, oh, well, this person obviously knows what they're talking about. They're they're a smart person. They've thought through these things, so that must be the correct position. But honestly, I think at the end of the day, well, we can learn things from these early church fathers and from church history and things like that. It still sort of comes down to an argument from authority, I think, you know, and it's not necessarily a valid argument argument for your theological position because you should be asking the question well why did that person believe that you know just because that person believes that doesn't necessarily make it true we should go back and see if the bible actually validates their belief instead of just taking a church an early church father and saying i'm going to believe everything yeah, he, he believes says it, so i believe it yeah kind of like aquinas yeah yeah and you definitely don't want to go to Aquinas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking 1,100 years later. Yeah. You know? uh, so, yeah. And, I mean, even Aquinas, right? So he's writing in the 1100s. Um, even Aquinas, you, you have to sit there and marvel at what this guy, I mean, his Summa Theologiae, it's, it's massive. It's just, I mean, what, 85 volumes or something. I mean, this thing is huge. He covers every topic in the world, just about. Um, incredible insights, right? And he's the father of the Catholic Church and, and, and a lot of their positions, not all of them, but, but a lot of them. Uh, but again, you have to take him in his historical context. And his historical context is, you know, this is really pretty early on in the scholastic era. An era where they're just coming out of the what we would call the Dark Ages. The Catholic Church called it the Golden Ages, uh, but it, it, you know it's the Dark Ages in terms of of biblical understanding and and those kinds of of things. And it's just incredible that this guy was able to to grasp all of these things, and uh, and, and it's marvelous. I wouldn't agree with his theology in a lot of areas, but I have to marvel at this individual who you know, didn't have all the stuff that we have, and yet no Google. far exceeds. No. Yeah, right. No Google. You know that far <laughs> no exceeds what we have. Yeah. In terms of knowledge, I had uh, one more rebuttal that I've been thinking about, and then I guess we can wrap it up unless you have other questions that you want to ask. Um, but I know we're we're going kind of long here. Um, but, you know, one thing that was also convincing for me back in the day 
um, when I was learning about dispensationalism and premillennialism. And it's not necessarily an argument, I think, against amillennialism, more so as it is sort of just a, a shot or a thoughtless insult maybe even, is that they say that you amillennialists, you just spiritualize everything and you're not taking the Bible serious and it says what it says and why can't you just take it literally? And so what would you say to the argument that you're just over-spiritualizing Revelation because that's sort of just the easy way out and you're not taking it literally enough? Sure. It's one of the reasons I don't like the uh, the, the title idealist. You know, the idealists believe mm. this. Um, that either is very prideful. You know, we have the ideal. You know? <laughs> um, or it's, yeah, we just turn everything into ideas and, and have no substance. On the one hand, I would agree. Uh, a lot of the commentaries, uh, and, and I do not include Beals and, and, you know, some of the more recent ones, but some of the older commentaries, um, and even uh, Vern Poitras, who was one of my, my professors at um, Westminster, they, they do that. They, they say, this is, this is simply about... Um, you know, the greater vision of what God has done and is doing in history. And so let's not get all caught up in the specifics. I'm just the opposite. I, you know, John is so specific mm-hmm. about things. Everything. Why does he give us these colors? Why does he why does he use, you know, this particular numbers? Why does he describe it in this way? And I think uh, Beale has done an incredible job in uh, his his work, um, the New Testament use of the Old Testament, and he certainly uses that a lot in his uh, commentary on Revelation, in which he shows that you know, and I've been arguing this long before I, I knew him and in, in his writings, that ninety to ninety five percent of the Book of Revelation is from the Old Testament. There's, there's hardly anything new in that book. It's, it's out of the Old Testament. So then we have to ask ourselves, how did the New Testament writers interpret the Old Testament? And that's where it comes down to hermeneutics. Okay, so yes, everything is, you know, is specific. John is being very specific. But being specific does not mean that it's not typological. Hmm. Right, I don't think anybody argues with the fact that uh, when Luke says that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man, that he was quoting for Samuel. Right, that Samuel grew in wisdom and and uh, and and stature. Uh, you know that that's that that he's quoting that that he's saying Samuel was a type. Of mm-hmm. Christ, or when we're talking about Isaac being uh, offered as a sacrifice, I, I don't think anybody from any position is going to argue that. Well, you can't use that because you're spiritualizing it. Hmm. Well, that's true not just of those incidences. It's true of the Adams, Noahs, you know, uh, Moseses, uh, all the way through that I just said. Th- those are the Adams, and, and the New Testament's pointing us to that. Um, so the New Testament use of the Old Testament tells us that those things in the Old Testament were typological. That does not mean they weren't real. It doesn't mean they weren't actual and that they have historical significance and that we need to understand them in that historical significance. But it also means that they were pointing to something greater. And so when we're, when we're looking at Revelation, we have to say... How is John interpreting these Old Testament passages? He's certainly not interpreting them always the way that you and I would if we were reading that passage. But he is interpreting them, and he is, you know, expanding them. Now, let me give you a, a you know, I'll kind of try to wrap it up here. But Second Thessalonians two, um, you know, that's that's the passage about the man of lawlessness and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, all of that, right? Um, and the one who, who uh, restrains and, right? So when you, when you look at that passage and you read the various commentators on that passage, they really struggle hard uh, to understand um, what it is that that passage is talking about, all right? And 
if you if you look at what he is what Paul is saying and you look at it, it in a, a literal way uh, you know you're going to almost say well you know maybe the dispensationalists or at least the historic pre-mill guys are, are are right until you read revelation because in revelation John describes that that's what revelation 20 is about the binding of uh, of satan all right what's restraining him all right it's also what the man of of lawlessness is when we go to the beast in chapter 13 okay and so either uh, you know you, you can look at that and you say okay so so now we've got to take these things literally okay so i'm going to take the beast right this this land beast that's the prophet, the sea beast, which is, you know, the controlling beast. And I'm going to take all of that literally. Mm. So they're actually going to have frog spirits, demon spirits come out of their mouths, as well as Satan is going to have a demonic spirit come out of his mouth, because that's, that, that's what chapter 17 tells us, mm. all right? That, that these you know, demon spirits are going to come out of their mouths and, and they're going to go into the whole world and do all this stuff, right? Um, but if if we look at that and we see what what John is is saying in light of what John has said, for instance, in First John, where he talks about there being many antichrists in the world, you know, you've heard there's an antichrist, there's many antichrists, and the spirit of antichrist is in the world. And then we we re in, we translate that passage in uh, Revelation 13 instead of saying. And, um, you know, it is the name of a man. And we retranslate it and say it is the name of man, or the number of man, I should say, the number of man. Then all of a sudden that makes a huge difference in, in how we interpret what Paul is saying in Second Thessalonians 2, that it's the spirit of man because it, you know, in Second Thessalonians two, he kind of was flip flopping back between it and and he, you know, in, in terms of that thing. So, uh, I think Revelation, John is taking Revelation and he is explaining, in a sense, what is Paul talking about in Second Thessalonians two, there and other passages like that. So yes symbolism or typology, you, you can call it that. But what it's really doing, I think, is expository, uh, you know, understanding as we compare Scripture with Scripture and, and, and have a consistent hermeneutic from Genesis to Revelation. I, I think I did have one more question, and this is one that I think everybody has on their mind when they're reading through the book of Revelation. I'm probably reading my mind right now. Go ahead. <laughs> is the COVID vaccine... <laughs> The mark of the uh, beast. We asked him that before. <laughs> Did we? <laughs> By the way, we will have an episode on signs and symbol. We'll be able to, you know, answer all these questions of as far as numerology and what's the mark of the beast, seven 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 six six six. All these things we will speak on this. So you'll have uh, answers to these things. But go ahead, Pastor. Well, my answer is. <laughs> <laughs> but. I think this one last question, and you can hit on it pretty quickly. This but is our third last when, question. When people when people <laughs> think amillennialism, pre-mill, this be whatever, they always think of tribulation. So how how does the tribulation fit in the amill position? Well, as part of es- the realized eschatology, we're in the tribulation now. Um, so the the reigning with Christ is in heaven, living on earth is tribulation, and it's the whole period um, from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, well, really all the way from Adam until uh, the second coming of Jesus Christ, um, but specifically from the resurrection, ascension, and coronation of Jesus Christ until the, uh, uh, until the second coming. Um, that's the whole tribulation period, but that would lead into a a whole interpretation of the book of Revelation, and I don't think we want to go there today. <laughs> okay, so in short, amillennialists believe that we are in the tribulation right now. Correct. The Apostle Paul okay. says, if you're going to live a godly life, you will suffer persecution. Not you might, but you will. You cannot live in this world of darkness 
stand for the gospel of Jesus Christ without in some way running into opposition. And John is writing from a point of tribulation as well. No question in Revelation, about it. He says it. I'm yes. writing to you from, what is that, verse 7 or 8 or something like that? 10. 10. As yeah. your brother in the tribulation. One yeah. ten. Yeah. As your brother in the tribulation. So there you go. Uh, that was our episode on amillennialism. I know there's a whole lot more questions that you have. If you're listening, you're scratching your head, that's okay. This is a good introduction. It's a good way to get your feet wet. But this is not to replace personal study. This one-hour episode is not going to be enough for you to completely wrap your mind around any eschatological view. But it's a good way to get your feet wet into it and kind of have a basic understanding of the hermeneutic uh, for amillennialism. But please, if you have any questions, you could ask them on our website. We do have a chat there that you can type questions to. We do have Instagram. We do have uh, Twitter that you can write to us. You can email us. Uh, but we want your questions. And if we don't have the answers, we have people that can help you find the answers. Right, Pastor Chris? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was our episode on amillennialism. We do hope you enjoy it. If you like what you've heard so far, make, a, make sure you go and check us out at Bible Dingers across the board on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And we hope you keep listening. Ding on. <laughs>